Good morning, church. My name is Colton, and I have the honor of reading our scripture passage this morning. It's going to be Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. It'll be on the screen, um, as well as page 966 in your pew Bible. Chapter 3, starting in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patience and endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he get out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. Thank you, Colton, and thanks, Volker, for praying. Well, we need to hear from God's word today. I don't know about you, but I've had lots of other words, so to speak, uh, coming at me throughout this week, throughout this past month, and we need to hear from God. And so we're going to do that this morning as we sit before this letter to the church in Philadelphia. But before we do that, let's ask for God's help. Lord, we bow before you as our king. And we pray, Lord, that you would wash us with your word as you speak about in Ephesians 5. Lord, that you would give us what we do not have, that you would speak your word so loudly that all the other words that we've heard from all the other sources in our life would be subservient to your word. Lord, we pray for those of us that feel spiritually stale, relationally worn out, emotionally volatile, anxious, revive us by your word. Those of us that feel that we have little power, strengthen us by your word. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen. Well, everyone has keys. Most likely, you're sitting here in the pew with a set of keys, either in your pocket or in your purse. I have my keys right here. I've got my car key. I've got my key to the church. And I've got my key to our apartment. Now you know how to take over my life. But these keys, a key implies access. 
but it also implies the authority to determine who has access to a given place. Only my wife and I determine who has access to our apartment, to our home, who comes and goes. And yet that's not entirely true because we rent our apartment. Therefore, it's our landlord who has full access, and his name's Chris Bryce. He's actually a member of our church. He's a great man. He's made the coffee this morning in, in the uh, cafe. He's got the real keys. And there was one point early on when my wife and I uh, had just moved here that uh, we locked ourselves out of our apartment. And actually, I locked ourselves out of our apartment. And uh, we were at the mercy of Chris and his keys. We thought he might be on vacation. Tensions were very high. Frustration was expressed, mostly toward me, and rightfully so. Anxiety plagued us because we had just purchased this massive armoire and we're using the church van to bring it to our apartment. And we were wondering, are we going to have to sleep in the church van? We needed access. And we were at the mercy of the only one who could give it to us. That's true for a lot of our lives, right? We long to have access to the right places. To be welcomed into the right places and we fear being shut out. Even with the Lord, we can often feel outside and wonder if we will ever make the cut to be welcomed in. If he will ever turn the key. Either because we've been treated in the past in poor ways, or because we know that we've thought and said and done things that warrant that we should be cast out, locked out of the presence of God. And even for those of us who cling to Christ and know Christ and have experienced being welcomed in, do we have a stable place there? Maybe the church in Philadelphia were experiencing the same things as a result of what they were going through. And we receive good news in this letter. And it's only good news. There's no confrontation in this letter. One of the few letters to the churches where there's no confrontation, only comfort and encouragement. And Jesus introduces himself in this way in verse 7. Turn with me there. The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. David was the anointed king of Israel. The government over God's people was upon his shoulders. He had been endowed with the authority to welcome whoever he chose to welcome, to cast out whoever he chose to cast out. And through the doors of the kingdom, he sent out armies to conquer kings and kingdoms. In his name, he had the keys of the kingdom. And he sat with those keys upon his throne in Jerusalem, the central hub of Israel's life, which came to be called the city of David. His name was written on the soil, written on the city for years to come, one, because he had conquered that land, 
And yet it was also a symbol of God's faithfulness to God's people through David and a testimony to the promise that he had made to David that he would bring an offspring from David, an offspring that would cause his throne to endure. In 1 Chronicles 22 verse 10, God promises this offspring, a son who would carry his name and authority. He says this, the Lord says this to David, he shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son and I will be his father and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. David's son would carry his father's keys. He would build a house for God's name. He would enjoy an intimate relationship with God as his father. And his reign would never end. And this promise was fulfilled in part through Solomon, David's son, who did just that. Solomon reigned over Israel. He built the temple, something that David wanted to do but never did because God refused to let him do it because of the blood that was on his hands. Rather, Solomon did it. And this temple was a place through which God, the Holy One, the name that Christ takes upon himself, would dwell with his people. But in the temple, God dwelled behind doors, a layer of doors, through which only certain people, in certain circumstances, in certain ways, were allowed to enter into God's presence. The door was shut to those who didn't have the right role, the right clothes, the right ethnicity, the right gender. The door was locked to many. But this temple was never meant to be a forever temple. David's son Solomon was never meant to be a king forever. Rather, both of them were preparing the way for what was to come. The Lord had promised to David that his throne would endure forever. God had promised a greater king, an everlasting king, one who would come, conquer Israel's enemies, reign over them, and ultimately rule the nations. One who would carry the keys of David. And here, as Jesus writes to the church in Philadelphia, he's calling upon the story of David, without which we cannot understand the story. He's calling upon the Old Testament, Old Covenant story of David. He declares that he holds the key of David, which means that he is that promised descendant of King David who reigns in heaven. The one that the people of God, Israel, the Jews were longing for. The Holy One who is God himself. And the good news he offers is that he is Lord over all. He is the king in whom man meets with God. The king who calls the shots, who decides who is in and who is out. And he says so, he starts this letter in such a way to encourage the believers in Philadelphia because they needed it desperately. We hear so in verse 8. Look with me at verse 8. I know your works. I know that you have but little power. 
And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Later on in verse 10, he says a similar statement where he says, because you have kept the word about patient endurance, which really means because you have kept my word, the word about my patient endurance. The church in Philadelphia was weak. Little power. They were maybe a small church, maybe a young church, maybe a poor church, most likely an unimpressive church. Not a church that you would pass by on the road and think, ooh, wow, they've got a lot going on. God's really on the move there. Not like that. Maybe lacking in influence. Maybe their preaching was bad. Maybe their music was awkward. Unlike ours, love our music. They probably didn't have a cool logo outside their door. They probably didn't have a well-manicured website or three full services on a Sunday morning. And what we do know is that they were persecuted. Despite their little power, they were persecuted, pressured to deny the name of Christ. Nevertheless, despite their weakness, they did not relent in their witness to the living Jesus. They did not deny the name. Rather, they remained devoted to declaring and demonstrating the good news about Jesus. They followed the word about his patient endurance. For he endured persecution and violence for declaring the gospel of the kingdom of God, which is the declaration that he was, that he is, and that he will forever be king. He has the authority to welcome all who would come to him in faith and surrender to him as king. That is why he was persecuted. He was declaring divine sovereignty. And that's why the church in Philadelphia was persecuted. As king, Jesus declares to the church in verse 8, in the middle of verse 8, verse eight, Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. Jesus had welcomed them into the kingdom of God, and no one could steal them away from the king. He opened the door and locked them in. Or better yet, locked out those who were persecuting them, namely the Jews. For the Jews despised Christ's radical declaration of divine kingship and his authoritative, gracious welcome of those who were not Jews, but Gentiles, pagans formerly. It's ironic. Because in verse 9, Jesus names these Jews the ones who say that they are Jews and are not. The Jews, those that held their religious position over the Gentile Christians in Philadelphia, really had no religious position at all, according to Jesus. Rather, it was those who submitted to the true king of Israel, 
Jesus the Christ that were considered God's true people. Furthermore, Jesus refers to the Jews as worshipers of Satan. Liars. What does a synagogue of Satan look like? Pagan symbols on the walls. Dark and ominous corporate chants. Skulls, crossbones. Figures with horns and hellfire swirling about. No, probably not. This synagogue of Satan most likely had the appearance of holiness, had the appearance of fidelity to God. Stars of David, maybe. Festive colors symbolizing Jewish holidays that were commemorating God's faithfulness to his people and what he's done in the past. But Jesus calls it satanic. And they were deemed demonic because they had deluded themselves and opposed the true king and his good news of welcome to the whole world. And he might have aligned them with Satan because, as was customary in that time, the Jews aligned themselves with the Roman government, with another king. It was through Roman rule that the Jews often enjoyed economic prosperity and religious security and freedom. Their religious life had become politically enmeshed with the surrounding culture. The Jews opened their doors to the wrong people, to the wrong entities, and closed them to those that the Lord in his grace was drawing to himself, and they did all of it in the name of God. That is the meaning of demonic. Have we closed the door of salvation to those that God might be drawing to himself? Or maybe just simply left the door unopened? And you might say, well, of course not. Well, how many people do we walk by and and we don't even think about the possibility that God might be drawing near to them? A neighbor, someone who's different than you, who looks different than you, who's from a different neighborhood, a different country, talks different than you, a family member, that intimidates you. I have some of those. Or someone who's harmed you in the past. Maybe we haven't closed the door of salvation. Maybe we just closed the door of fellowship with other believers. Maybe it's someone in the church, capital C. Maybe it's someone in this church who has wronged you or is different from you, and you've resolved to remain at a distance from them, comfortable distance, maybe not perpetrating harm, but distance because it feels safe or it leaves you space to hold on to your bitterness. Have we opened the door of our church to political enmeshment 
in which we interpret the world and we interpret the Bible and we interpret Christ himself through the lens of our political convictions and the political landscape of our time. Rather than seeing the current culture, seeing the Bible, seeing the political landscape through the lens of Jesus Christ as the king of all the earth. The king of kings. The Jews had found solace in being the keeper of the keys. The Christians threatened both the religious tradition of the Jews, their security with the Roman government, and the delight that they took in having those keys in their hands, being the arbiters of worship. So the Jews wanted to rid the city of them. They had but little power. Maybe it wouldn't take very much. But persecuted and despised, the Christians remained faithful to the name of King Jesus. And Jesus promises vindication. He says, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. In the movie, Just Mercy, Jamie Foxx plays a man, Walter McMillan, also known as Johnny D, a man who in 1988 was wrongfully convicted of a murder of a woman he did not commit. He was sentenced to death. The movie tells the tale of Walter McMillan's pursuit of justice with the help of his attorney, Brian Stevenson. The story is agonizing. As we walk with Walter's, as we walk with Johnny D's anguish over the injustice, the persecution, the wrongful conviction, and feeling powerless before the justice system. But after five years of fighting, Walter was vindicated and set free. The keys of justice unlocked the door of wrongful persecution. And Jesus promises the same to these Christians. The persecuted will be exalted over the persecutors. The accused will be exalted over their accusers. Not that the Christians would gloat over them, but that the Jews would know the love of Jesus and give glory to the King of Kings. And what's ironic is that this is a reversal of what was promised to Israel in the book of Isaiah. In Israel 49, 23, the Lord declares that the pagan nations, the Gentile nations that oppose the people of God are going to do the same thing. We read this, with their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. God promised to the Jews in Isaiah that the Gentile nations would come and bow down before their feet and know that God is king. And now Jesus promises to the church full of Jews and Gentiles that the faithless Jews 
will bow at their feet and they will know that Jesus has loved them. That Jesus has preferred them and welcomed them in. Jesus promises vindication. But he also promises preservation and protection. Verse 10, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. To try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Not only will Jesus bring the Jews before their feet, but he will preserve them and their witness when the hour of trial comes. When he promises a unique presence, a unique presence of comfort and protection in the face of suffering. And he promises full presence when he comes again, which is soon. And what must they do in the meantime? Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Hold fast. The only command in the whole passage, hold fast. Jesus, the one who holds the keys of heaven, will hold them fast in the trial. And they are called to hold fast to him until he comes, which is going to be soon. It's easier to endure pain when you know that the end of it is coming soon. Maybe you've run a 5K or maybe just a mile. There was a mile run on Front Street just this past week. That last half mile of a 5K is usually the most painful, right? But it's also the most motivating because you know the finish line is close. It's easier to keep going. It's easier to hold fast and even to go faster than you were before. To push harder because you know the end is coming. And the end that is coming for the church that endures as a finish line like no other. Verse 12 might be the most magnificent verse in the Bible. I know I'm preaching this text and so it's helpful that I'm saying that. Definitely the most Amazing verse I've read in a long time. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, is the first portion. Look with me at verse 8 again. Christ says, Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. And only a few verses later, immediately following verse 22 of chapter 3, the last verse of these seven letters, we read in chapter 4, verse 1, John says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And in verse 2, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Jesus will not just welcome the church into his kingdom in some general, ambiguous way. He has unlocked the door of the throne room of heaven in which the Father, Son, and Spirit reign over the universe. And we're brought in. He promises to make them a pillar 
in God's temple, a symbol of absolute permanence. They will never leave God's presence, neither will they be cast out. And yet the temple in heaven is not a place, per se, but a person. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 22, John says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Christ isn't just promising citizenship, access, or permanence, but union with the king. Eternal fellowship with the king of kings. He goes on in verse 12, and I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven, and my own new name. Where do you write your name? The front page of your Bible, maybe? The title of your car? Your homework? An email? To write your name on something shows that it belongs to you. That you possess it. Like when Andy writes his name on Woody's boot in the Toy Story movies. Woody is now Andy's. And in some way, Andy is now Woody's. Mutual possession and relationship. J.I. Packer has a magnificent quote describing this very thing in terms of marriage, which he considers to be an exchange of names. And the significance of that, this is how he talks about it. In English society, a commoner who marries a lord thereby becomes a lady. And one who marries a duke or a prince becomes a duchess or a princess, simply by virtue of who her husband is. His dignity now embraces her, so that hers now matches his. He goes on to say, to to apply it to our walk with Christ, the Father's present and ongoing embrace of his incarnate Son, his King Son, as perfectly righteous, to be honored accordingly, embraces us with him. For his sake, by virtue of what he has done for us. This is what Christ is doing when he writes his name on us. He's declaring to the whole world, to the whole universe, that we belong to him forever. And now his home is our home. His honor is our honor. His purity is our purity. His perfection is our perfection. His dignity now embraces us. And it can be so because Christ the King became one of little power. One who was persecuted but patiently endured affliction and death that we might be vindicated in him. The King conquered by becoming an outsider. That outsiders, those locked out of God's presence, might be brought in. On the cross, the doorway into heaven was shut before him. 
that we might freely enter into the temple of God. But he was raised from the dead by the love of his father and with the keys of David. The keys of the kingdom are in his hand. He bears a new name. And that new name represents a new identity. For he's now just not the king. He's now just not the the incarnated son. He's the risen king. He's passed through the veil of death and come out on the other side, risen and reigning, and he has signed his name on you. No sin, no suffering, no harm can scrub it off. You are his, he is yours, and we are his together forever. He opens and no one can shut. And he shuts and no one can open. Christ opened this door for the church and for us, but it wasn't just a doorway into heaven, but a doorway to ministry, a doorway to a calling. A doorway goes both ways. We're brought in that we might go out and proclaim the good news of Christ's kingdom and the fact that he holds the keys and anybody can get in on that. Called to proclaim to a world that's fraught with sin and weakness. Whether they realize it or not, the world longs for a king, one who's going to rule them. One who is good, merciful, and just. This letter is an encouragement, but it is also a call that we might declare and demonstrate the character, the work, and the nature of the king until he comes. Let's respond to that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for showing us that Christ is king showing us that we we don't have a king that rules over us in a domineering way, in a controlling and manipulative way for his own ends. Rather, we have a king, a servant king, a king who's, who's sacrificed for us in love, who was cast out that he might unlock the door to the throne room of heaven and that we might be united to him forever by faith. Lord, and we pray that the world would know that you are king. Catch us up into your mission of your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.